Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In some ways, Keita Haynes' journey is unique. She became a public defender in Nashville after spending nearly five years in federal prison. But what drives her to lobby the state and federal lawmakers to reform the criminal justice system is the fact that in many ways, she is not an outlier. She's just one of the thousands of people who have experienced firsthand the devastating impact of incarceration. Later this hour, we'll talk with Keita Haynes about her life and her passion for her work. But first, Nashville's first medical examiner is infamous for a litany of errors. After serving for about a decade, Davidson County suspended Dr. Charles Harland without pay in 1994, and his contract as state medical examiner was terminated a year later. Then his medical license was revoked, but that didn't curb the damage he caused. While he was a medical examiner, he testified in numerous cases that led to convictions and prison sentences. Now one man is pushing to overturn his conviction on a case that Harlan handled. Mariah Timms is justice reporter for The Tennessean. She's been covering this story, and she joins me now. Mariah, thanks for being here, and welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Excellent. So, you know, let's get a greater understanding of who Charles Harlan was. Talk to me about this man. Sure. Um, It's interesting to me that I sort of fell into his story when I was reporting this bigger story here Mm. because his name shows up everywhere. Um, A lot of times the bigger cities will handle autopsies, death investigations from surrounding counties. And so he was at the center of so much. It's a man who, uh, you know, he was appointed medical examiner at the time, the way they ran it here in Nashville. He had kind of overall control of the entire department. He either handled autopsies himself, oversaw his team doing it, and just was really in charge of everything here in Nashville and the surrounding counties that would bring in their cases to him. How did he become Nashville's medical examiner? He was already in the field, right? You know, he was uh, qualified under the terms of medical examiner, which is not something that's standardized necessarily. Some states, they're elected coroners. Some states, they're different. In some places, you know, more rural areas, they may be just somebody with some medical training to do the basics, and then they send it up to the big city mm-hmm. for more in-depth uh, work. So there, there isn't necessarily a nationwide standard for what that job looks like. Um, and he was sort of up and coming in his field. Uh, they just built a brand new center for him to do work in, and he stepped into that role and, uh, as you said, held it for nearly a decade and sort of set the tone for how that office worked for that time. So, you know, a medical examiner performs autopsies and works with prosecutors to build cases, which means accuracy is vital. Yet, as you detail in your story, Harlan's work often contained grievous errors. Can you share a few examples of the kinds of errors we're talking about here? Sure. Um, some of this is both errors in the final reports and just things I would call questionable behavior in the office itself in the process of doing these autopsies. So some mm. of the things I detail in my story, and I had to cut out a bunch for this story, um, you know, there were times he misidentified bodies. We have at least two individual or individual cases where there was a, a body found burned in a car. He identified this as a person that, you know, the remains were buried, the case was dusted, and two years later, that man was pulled over in a traffic stop, wow. alive and well. Wow. <laughs> um, there was another case where... There had been a car crash in a vehicle carrying uh, two Tennessee inmates. I don't know exactly where they were from. He 
misidentified the bodies as each other and sent the remains to the wrong families. Um, another factor in that case was they were still shackled when they were sent back to their families, mm. sort of raising questions about the thoroughness of the investigation at the top. It, it would be difficult to do what we would think of as a thorough autopsy today while these remains were still in chains. What did the state do about these this long line of mistakes that he made? Eventually, it came to light. There were reports of other things. Uh, sexual harassment in the workplace was reported. Um, there was all kinds of things were happening in this office. And eventually, his contract was not renewed. Um, it had been a contract position. It wasn't renewed. That's a little bit different than a firing, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily inherently come with policy changes. But it does seem as though there was a sharp shift in the way that Metro handled things after that and after him. This might be hard to answer, but do you have an idea of how many cases he was involved in? I can't. There's, at this point, no way to know. Um, he was, as I said, the chief medical examiner in Nashville. He was handling all of those cases, overseeing every case that came into Nashville, uh, even if he didn't necessarily have a hand in the direct autopsy. Um, and then eventually he was handling these cases for 39 counties across Tennessee. That's a lot of counties. And it's the question is not just which ones did he fully do the investigation on, was it a simple, straightforward cause of death? Was it a more nuanced one like the case I'm looking at in this story where the medical expertise really matters? Was it, you know, part of the bigger case, there were witnesses and police followed a different trail and he was just incidental to it. It's impossible to know what those look like until somebody digs in. Now, he lost his medical license in 2005. What ultimately led him to lose that license? I think it was this. The, mm. These these mistakes were known for years. Um, it takes a while for you know, the, the ship of uh, regulatory boards or of the state of all of it to come around into making change. It was after a, a lengthy series of hearings, multiple hearings that lasted hours, um, that it ended up coming down to that. So it's well known that he's making mistakes. Did prosecutors continue to work with him despite this reputation? Some did, yes. Wow. All right, so... I have this question, you know, what type of dangers does that present to people who are going through the criminal justice system if prosecutors are going to continue to work with someone who's known to be making, you know, very, very vital errors? That's a great question because it's really hard to say. Um, it sort of builds this distrust in the system as we have it. And it's not that no one can make mistakes, right? This is we are humans creating a human system. Our justice system is sort of created out of an idea we could do something better, and that has evolved and changed and will continue to change. Every year there's new legislation across the country trying new things, figuring that out. But if you don't have a mechanism within the system to check, to make sure that these regulations are being followed or that they're even set, that funding and resources, all of that is properly put together to make sure that what we're doing, what we're giving to a jury, if it gets to that, um, is reliable, is accurate, is you know a true test of guilt or innocence. That raises questions about how we do all of this. Mm. In your story, you mentioned a man by the name Wayne Burgess, who is working to get his conviction overturned. Can you give us a quick breakdown of his case and how Harlan fits into it? Sure. He's actually how I got into this story. So mm. Wayne Burgess is, he was convicted in Giles County almost 30 years ago um, in the death of a child. It was his girlfriend's young child. Um, she suffered an injury, was taken to the hospital and died uh, while in medical care. His case, his conviction, uh, rests on two things. The medical evidence uh, that was supplied by Charles Harlan, who did the autopsy, who handled it, who changed his testimony on the day of trial in mm. the courthouse, mm. not giving defense enough time to sort of revise their approach if needed. Um, and also a confession that is, you know, looking back, kind of suspect, kind of rocky to determine whether this was a really valid 
signed statement because it doesn't even match what the prosecution was saying at the time. It doesn't it doesn't really track. So he has fought this. He's gone through his appeals. This is now a post-conviction appeal uh, fought by the Tennessee Innocence Project saying, hey, let's get this back into court. We have evidence of actual innocence. We, be, you know, we believe we have this. We are arguing that this this medical evidence that he was convicted on is not just dodgy. It's impossible. Um, and he's trying to push that through and finally get, you know, the relief he seeks. Mm. You talked earlier about the checks that may or may not exist for the criminal justice system. What here in Tennessee, what's the process for overturning a conviction where the medical examiner has clearly made a mistake or has been discredited as a credible expert? There isn't a short answer to that. Wow. So, um, I think we have this idea that the appeals process, which exists and is robust, um, is intended to fix that. That's not the goal of it most of the time. Um, it's to look at the trial, if it was a trial, look at the way things went, if that was done fairly, you know, if everything was fairly presented. It doesn't go back. They're not fact-finding missions to go back and find if there was evidence that was never presented to a jury sort of thing. Mm. They're also, they're time-barred. After a certain point, there isn't a, a constitutional right to um, representation the same way. Um, there's a se seriously low funding for these things too. So there are absolutely appointed lawyers and defense lawyers doing this pro bono, all of that doing great work trying to get this done. But it's a numbers game, um, trying to figure out if you are going to be in that bubble of people who are able to get that representation, or if you're trying to do these complicated direct appeal cases or post-conviction after that, after you go through all of your appeals, there's another chance to say this. Um, if you can do that, if you can pay for medical experts, if you can pay for research, if you can do all of that from behind prison bars, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. So how does this case you know, reflect the greater issue of appeals in Tennessee? It really reflects how so many things come together to form a case and how it's very difficult to unravel those. Um, so as we said, you have your original trial, you have the conviction, you immediately file a motion for a new trial to say, hey, let's take a look at this, make sure the judge made all the calls right, do that. Sometimes those work, often they don't. Um, at that point, you can appeal your conviction, you can appeal your sentence, you can work through those direct appeals, but it's after that whole thing is completed that you go, that's your first real chance to say, actually, I was innocent. Not just that this wasn't done properly. You, you, you probably will have raised that claim, but the most functional legal mechanism is at that point. Um, and you can do that sort of through claiming ineffective assistance of counsel, saying, you know, my attorney didn't look into this or they were unable to get this evidence. Um, maybe, you know, the claim that the prosecution didn't hand over all of this evidence or, hey, that the medical evidence may not have been done properly and we didn't have enough time to get somebody else in to look at that. Those are very strictly time barred. Uh, you have to be within a year of when you um, want to do it. Funding in Tennessee for that, like I mentioned, is really low. Um, in many cases, it's only up to about $1,500. And that's not pure profit. That's just $50 an hour for an attorney who may try to keep the roof over their own heads, right? Trying to figure out how to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really narrow avenue, but that is the actual innocence claim avenue. Wow. There are some situations where, you know, we've seen conviction review cases. Prosecutors have a lot of discretion um, and what, where to put their resources. What resources they have is also a question, right? But um, we've seen conviction review units start popping up under this new idea in Tennessee that prosecutors have a, a duty to, to review cases when they receive evidence that they no longer have faith in the conviction and either agree with the defense, support a push to overturn or retry or fully exonerate. There are a lot of different paths things can take from there. Mm. 
So what's the current state of Wayne Burgess's appeal? It's very much in limbo. Um, and that's kind of normal, as stressful as I'm sure that is for the defendant. Um, he filed his petition for post-conviction relief, and the state has yet to respond. And by that, I mean the local district attorney um, over Giles County. The prosecutors um, have a lot of paths they can take. And because it's an open case, there's not much they're saying about it, which is, again, normal for this process. Um, they could support it. They could decide they want to do their own thorough investigation if they have the time and money to do so. Um, or they could argue against it if they feel, you know, they want to defend this conviction. They feel that it was based on thorough investigation. They may say there's so many things they could say. And yeah. that's not just in this case. That's in any case. There are a lot of things that could be very true that come into this argument. You know, Charles Har Harlan touched so many cases. Would it even be possible to go up and clean up his work? Technically possible, yes, uh, but it's not easy. You know, we've seen a case here in Nashville that was overturned that included um, a, an autopsy done by his office. It was actually by his wife at the time, but he oversaw it. Um, there's a man on death row who's arguing that his um, conviction should be overturned because of Harlan-based evidence. There are paths for if the governor wanted to, you know, governors across the state have broad exoneration powers, sorry, across the country, have broad exoneration powers, could create a commission to look into them. Um, if each individual prosecutor's office wanted to go back through their files and do it. But at this point, there is no centralized database that says, here are all the cases that Charles Harlan was even briefly mentioned in, and we need to go look at those and figure out how much of an impact we had. You'd have to build that and then go back through it. Mariah Timms is justice reporter for The Tennessean. You can find the link to her story in today's episode post at thisisnashville.org. Mariah, thanks for being here again, and thank you for your reporting. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with criminal justice reform advocate Keita Haynes about the state of criminal justice in Tennessee and the work she's doing to change it. Join the conversation. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Keita Haynes is a leading voice for criminal justice reform. In her current role as senior legal counsel for the nonprofit Free Hearts, she does everything from mentoring formerly incarcerated people to testifying at congressional hearings and lobbying state and federal lawmakers. But her path to this work was not an easy one. She spent nearly five years in federal prison, an experience that shaped her path forward. She has since worked as a public defender, run for Congress, and written a book about her journey. She's dedicated, she's relentless, and she joins me now. Keita Haynes, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Really appreciate you being here. So, you know, last week you were in Washington, D.C. on a work trip. What were you doing in the nation's capital? <laughs> so um, we were there to um, lobby our um, senators, um, Marsha Blackburn and um, Bill Haggerty, um, asking them to, one, to either be co-sponsors of the Equal Act or to support it um, once it is called for the um, call to the floor for a vote. And so the Equal Act, it is um, federal legislation and what it will do is that it will alleviate the 100 to 1 racial disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. And we know that, um, you know, with a lot of things in the criminal legal system, um, this is impacting um, black and brown communities. And so this will 
like I said, alleviate to that racial disparity and approximately about like 8,000 people will be able to be released from prison next year. Okay, so can you talk about this gap between crack cocaine and powdered cocaine in sentencing? Yes. So on the federal level, um, crack cocaine and powder cocaine is treated differently um, for folks when it comes to sentencing, which is interesting because Tennessee um, on the local level does not treat powder cocaine and crack cocaine differently. And so if you are caught with crack cocaine, then your sentence will be higher than if you have powder cocaine. And so it used to be one to 100. So usually it would take, um, you know, 100 times more um, powder cocaine than crack cocaine for you to get the same sentence. Mm. And so in um, 2010, under the um, Sentencing Reform Act, they reduced it down to 18 to one. And um, in 2018, with the First Step Act of 2018, they made that retroactive because it wasn't retroactive in 2010. And so they made that retroactive. And so now we are asking them to continue that and to make this one to one um, where there will be no disparity when it comes to sentencing folks on the federal level with crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Is it fair to say that this disparity between crack cocaine, powder cocaine, is a part of the so-called war on drugs? Yes, it is. Um, it's part of the fictitious war on drugs. And, um, you know, being in prison for almost four years, I literally saw how um, the this war on drugs really decimated um, black and brown communities. And, um, you know, and really was a driver with, um, you know, mass incarceration. The United States incarcerated the most people in the entire world. Um, and the fictitious war on drugs definitely was a driver in mass incarceration. Yeah, I remember being a young person and seeing the war on drugs really start to unfold. And I'm from the suburbs of Baltimore and I saw how it affected, even started reaching out to us. You know, explain to me these consequences that we've suffered due to the war on drugs. Like, how has it impacted communities specifically here in Nashville? Well, I mean, it has totally decimated communities here in Nashville. And, you know, one of the ways that, that it has impacted our community here in Nashville is that it has completely diluted the black vote, right? Because mm. what, you know, with the, the correlation between um, voting rights and the criminal legal system Really and truly what we have done is that we have allowed the criminal legal system to decide who gets to participate in our democracy, right? Because if you have a felony conviction on your record here in the state of Tennessee, you will not be able to vote until you have successfully completed your probation, parole, supervision, whatever it is that you had. You've paid fees and fines. Um, and Tennessee is the only state that requires you to be current on your child support. Mm -hmm. And Tennessee, right now, we are disenfranchising over 450,000 people because of a felony conviction on their record. I think we may be like number three in the entire country with the number of people that we're disenfranchising. And so, again, like I said, you know, there's a correlation between all of this. And then, you know, we can look at the school to prison pipeline. You know, there's all kinds of studies out there that show that if you have a parent that is incarcerated, you know, that you are likely to be incarcerated yourself. Um, you know, we can look at, you know, just everything that's in the community, the lack of housing for people, the resources that are available. And so I always say that, you know, then and now that we should be meeting people's needs with care and not cages. You know, you're talking about topics that we've talked about on This Is Nashville in the past few weeks and months. But, you know, let's get back to the Equal Act. How did our senators, how, how receptive were they to what you had to say? So Senator Blackburns um, heard, because we spoke with people in her office. We didn't actually speak with the senators themselves. And, and her office was very receptive to the things that we had to say, because, you know, this is not her first time being there. You know, she's this is not her first term there. So she was there um, when they passed the um, 
the um, the First Step Act of 2018, and she actually voted yes for it. Um, you know, and so so they were familiar with this, with the the racial disparities when it came to crack cocaine and powder cocaine. And so they were receptive with, you know, what we um, you know, what we had to say about it and, um, you know, wanted to know what other senators that we were speaking with and, you know, kind of what their position was. Um, and, you know, and so we left a conver- we left, you know, the conversation with them is that, you know, they would talk to her, um, you know, and then go from there with, you know, Bill Haggerty's person can considering that this is Bill Haggerty's first term in Congress, I'm not sure that they were really familiar with it. And so we talked with them a lot about the history of this and making sure that they understood the history of this um, and, you know, and just where this had come from. Right. Um, And so, you know, we'll see. The biggest thing is making sure that, um, you know, that Chuck Schumer is actually going to call it to the floor for a vote. That's kind of where we are now is, you know, making sure that we are putting the pressure on him to call it for a vote. And this is something that they want to get done before we have the next Congress Exactly. This is something that we're trying to get done in, you know, in what they call the lame duck section, because mm-hmm. if it doesn't get done before they, um, you know, leave, then it's going to have to be reintroduced. And so it's already passed the House twice. And so it would have to be reintroduced in the House again and then also reintroduced in the Senate. And so we're trying to prevent that. You know, this is something that has been going on, you know, for over 50 years now. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it is it's it's time, you know, for us to do what is right. You know, you've, you've also testified at Congressional Subcommittee about marijuana reform. And over the years, plenty of states have legalized medical and or recreational marijuana. And we still have a federal policy we that do. criminalizes mm-hmm. it. Why is it important that marijuana reform happen at the federal level? Well, it's important that that it happens at the federal level, that it happens at the state level, that it happens everywhere, right? Because, you know, again, this was a driving force with this fictitious war on drugs. And so, the, you know, and, and we hear all the time that, oh, well, this is a state issue. Actually, it's not. Like, this is a federal issue as well, too. There are people in federal prison that are serving life behind marijuana. But then you also look at folks who are making millions behind selling the very thing that folks are serving prison time mm. behind, right? Like, I tell people all the time, I am still subjected to collateral consequences behind marijuana. But yes, you have all of these people who are opening up these dispensaries and who are, you know, making millions off of the very thing that black people, you know, I'm saying have been, you know, put in custody for. What do you think of President Biden's recently issued pardon? Well, you know, I I commend him for doing it. Um, It was definitely a first step, but that's not that cannot be the end of it. And one of the things that I tell people all the time is that, first of all, what what President Biden did, that was for misdemeanors and to what he has been asking, you know, mayors and governors to do to follow suit. Those are misdemeanors, simple possession misdemeanor charges. Right. And those are not those don't come with the same collateral consequences that people who have felonies on that record, right? It is felonies that has a host of collateral consequences behind them that keeps people from voting, that keep people from getting housing, that keeps people from being able to, you know, pursue some type of higher education that limits the type of jobs that people can have. Um, So it is when you have felony convictions. And so we really need to look at that. Why it's commendable that, you know, that Joe Biden did that for folks who have misdemeanor convictions and governors and mayors across the country are doing that. Like we have to go further and we have to do, the, you know, people who have felonies on their record. And and on the federal level, it gets a little tricky, right? Because most people's 
um, you know, marijuana convictions are not simple, right? Mm -hmm. Like even my mind, like if I am honest, what I am convicted of is aiding and abetting, right? Which is 18 Mm -hmm. USC section two. It's not marijuana, but when you look at the conspiracy, which ties back to the underlying, you know what I'm saying, offense of it, that's how you get to the marijuana offense. And so there are a lot of people in the federal system who have conspiracy charges, you know, who have continual criminal enterprise charges, who have money laundering charges, you know, all of these things that tie back to marijuana. And so that's why it's important. But, you know, that's why it's not as simple as just a simple possession marijuana offense. If you're tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. My guest this hour is local criminal justice advocate, Keita Haynes. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. Now, you know, tell me about how you got involved with Free Hearts. How did you come into to connection with them? So when I was working um, as a public defender here in Nashville, um, Don Harrington, who is the executive director of Free Hearts, the, the Nashville scene had written a, a story about me, a cover story, and Don Harrington was doing some work at the public defender's office, and she was adamant that she did not want to have a meeting until she met me. And so mm. I met Don, and we just became fast friends. And I just believed in everything that she was doing. Um, you know, her mission with Free Hearts, wanting to focus on criminal justice reform, but with a focus on reuniting families. And so started volunteering with them. Um, you know, one of the big things that Free Hearts has done. Um, for a couple years now is the Christmas party that we do for kids who have parents that are incarcerated. And that's going to be coming up um, this weekend that we'll, we, be, we will be doing with the Casey Fund, um, mm-hmm. with Jarrell Casey and his fund. And so um, would volunteer for that. And then when they needed folks to do research, when they were actually um, working on their primary care legislation that actually got passed, doing research with that and just whatever I could do. Like I wanted to be a part of it, but, you know, I was still working at the public defender's office. So I used to volunteer with Free Hearts. Okay. Now, this is your passion and mm-hmm. your mission. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, what are the, some of the biggest problems are in our criminal justice system, specifically here in Nashville and the state of Tennessee? You know, there's there's a lot of problems. Um, and, and in my opinion, they're all big problems, right? Because there's an intersectionality. I don't think that we can talk about the criminal legal system without talking about, you know, the housing, um, the lack of affordable housing here in Nashville, you know, the lack of meaningful jobs where people are able, you know, to actually have a job where they can have a meaningful income, where they can afford to live here in Nashville. Um, I don't think we can talk about the criminal legal system without talking about, you know, the, the lack of adequate health care that is available for for people. Mm. So there's an intersectionality of all of this. We can't talk about democracy without talking about the criminal legal system. Again, I've told you how many people that are disenfranchised in the state of Tennessee. And so there's an intersectionality of all of these issues. And I think it's important that we understand that, that the criminal legal system is a driving force for all of this. And what it does is that it continues to perpetuate these cycles of poverty. It continues to perpetuate all of these different cycles that we're fighting against here in Nashville, right? And at the root of all of this, it is poverty and it is racism. And we have to acknowledge that because there's no way that I'm going to be able to do the work that I do with criminal in the criminal legal system without acknowledging that at the root of this is race and white supremacy. Mm. And I think that we have to acknowledge that in all of these systems all across the board. You know, sometimes people who aren't affected by an issue or a problem, they act like the, such as criminal justice reform. They act like it's for others to deal with. It's not happening over here. We'll let them deal with it. I'm just going to go on and live my supposedly happy life. What are they really missing? Like, what do you think is wrong about that perspective of thinking that, hey, this is happening over there. It doesn't really affect me. Let me move on. Well, 
you know, there's this whole otherism, mm. right? And, you know, a lot of people do have that. But the thing is, is that it is impacting us. It's impacting all of our lives, right? I could even say that, you know, that I I have a house and, you know, and I have a job. And so I could say that, oh, the lack of affordable housing doesn't impact me here in Nashville because I have a house. You know, I have a, you know, a job that allows me to be able to pay my bills and stuff like that. Like I could tell, but that's not true, right? Mm. You know, and, and the thing is, is that I just believe that even if it's not directly impacting me at the moment, like I have an obligation to continue to work and to make sure that because I, I feel that I am not free until everybody's free, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just mean my neighbor that live right next to me or across from me. That means the folks that that live in West Nashville, the folks that live in East Nashville, the folks, you know what I'm saying, that live in, you know, downtown, you know, those that are unhoused, those that are in the criminal legal system, those that don't have health care. It means all of that. Like, I am not free until they are free, right? And so I think, you know, that if we all were to adopt that mentality, then I think we would really be able to move the needle further here in Nashville because while it's not knocking on your door right now, who's to say what's going to happen, you know, within 12 hours, 24 hours, you know what I'm saying? Or the next minute, like folks never thought that we would have a pandemic Mm -hmm. and folks never thought that they would be out of a job. Right. And these are people who do have degrees, people who did go to school. Folks never thought that they would never have health care. Right. And so, again, so we can't say that these things don't impact us because at any given moment, it can impact every single one of us. So no matter how much money we make, no matter where we live, we're we're affected and Mm -hmm. touched by this. Do lawmakers understand that when you talk with them? Some do and some don't, Mm. (laughs) you know, which makes which makes it, you know, kind of challenging. Right. Because some do and some don't. Um, For instance, like with our our voting rights um, legislation, we've introduced it a couple of times and most of the time we get shut down. And this time we got a little further this time, simple because it wasn't just myself and Dawn and Jacola and, you know, and other black folks that was up there talking about the disenfranchisement of folks in the criminal legal system when it comes to participating in our democracy. We brought in white people who were impacted. Mm. And so our, you know, white legislators, they listened. Right. Because they they were able to identify with them simply because of the color of their skin. Right. And it's just like, well, you know what, if this, you know, white lady who lives who doesn't live here, you know, in Nashville, because, you know, we think that Nashville, you know, it's like it's so progressive. But, you know, bringing somebody, you know, from rural communities, you know, who is impacted by this as well, too, and showing them that you have people in your district that is impacted by this as well, too. It is not just a Nashville thing. It is not just a Memphis thing. It is not just, you know, a Chattanooga thing. This is all across the state of Tennessee. And so, you know, it's it's like I said, it can be challenging, but, you know, we we continue on. <laughs> how how are you feeling about the prospect of change here in the state? Uh, you know, um, th- we we have a lot of work to do. Right. And and I think that if we get caught up in you know, how challenging it is, like how high the mountain is that we will have to climb, um, then I think it will be easy for us to say, you know what, I'm not going to take this on. But it is those moments when we have helped people get their voting rights back and they say, you know what, 
I have been trying to do this, you know what I'm saying, for X amount of years. You all have helped me to do this. And so now I want to come into this and I want to help other people, right? So it's really building a movement is what we're doing, right? And so instead of just, you know, looking at this mountain and it's like one person that's climbing this mountain or two or three or four of us, you know, there's a whole movement, you know, of folks that's climbing the mountain. So when we get tired, there are other people who have been down at the bottom that can say, okay, well, you know what? You all are tired. I'm going to take, you know what I'm saying, two steps, you know what I'm saying, above you all. And I'm going to take this on, you know, you all get some rest and then after you know you're rested then you know Mm -hmm. we can lift you back up you know and so that's what it's about and that's why I say you know it's about you know movement building it's about relationship building and so like I said so that way it doesn't fall just on one person to do the work we're all doing the work and we're all continuing you know to lift each other up throughout the process we have to take a quick break when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Keita Haynes. We'll talk about how her, her experience inside the criminal justice system inspired her to help change it. Do you have a question for Keita Haynes? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking with criminal justice reform advocate Keita Haynes about the work she's doing to change the criminal justice system in Tennessee and nationwide. She wrote about her story in her book, Bending the Arc, My Journey from Prison to Politics. Keita, again, thanks for being here. Thank you. So I'd love to get into your personal journey a little bit more. You were on a pretty clear path in law when you got caught up in the drug distribution theme that you've referenced. Can you tell us what happened? So when I was um, in college at Tennessee State University, majoring in criminal justice and psychology, um, I met a guy. um, I was 19 years old at the time, and he lived in Memphis, but he said that he was working here in Nashville And so we developed a relationship, and throughout that relationship, he started explaining a business venture that he had. It was a Beepers Plus shop, and I always tell people that ages me because a lot of people don't even know what Beepers are now. I I remember very well. (laughs) But (laughs) it was, yes, I know, we are, yeah. Those of us that are in that era, we had one. But it was a Beepers Plus shop, and so they had Beepers and they had cell phones, and they had a location here in Nashville and one in Memphis. And he said that no one would be at the location when FedEx would bring the boxes to drop off in Nashville. And so he asked if I would accept them and his cousins would come and pick them up. And he said, you know, I didn't have to do anything with them. They would kind of like pay me $50, you know what I'm saying, just for the hassle of it. And that was it. And so it turns out none of these packages ever contained cell phones and pagers, but contained marijuana. And so myself and 28 other folks were indicted here in the Middle District of Tennessee on different, various different marijuana conspiracy charges and money laundering charges. Um, everyone pled guilty except for me. I was the only person that chose to go to trial to hold the government to their burden and to exercise my right to do so. And I was acquitted of six charges and found guilty of aiding and abetting a conspiracy to distribute 100 to 400 kilograms of marijuana. 
Now, in the federal system, there's a thing called mandatory minimums. And so mandatory minimums are associated with a lot of offenses, honestly, in the criminal legal system, but particularly drug offenses. And um, and so the amount of drugs that they say that you were responsible for can trigger the amount of time that you will have to serve. So in my situation, that 100 to 400 kilograms of marijuana triggered a five-year mandatory minimum. So even someone like myself who was in college, majoring in criminal justice, had never had any exposure to the criminal legal system. I was looking at five years off top and nothing less. The judge could not give me any less than five years. Mm. Um, and so at my sentencing, the judge actually sentenced me to two years above the mandatory minimum and said that any person of my intelligence should have known that I was dealing with something highly illegal and that I was lucky to have been acquitted of the other charges. Um, and so because I did exercise my right, I still had my appellate rights. And so we ended up appealing, appealing my case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court um, remanded the case back to the Middle District of Tennessee because there was a lot of things going on um, in the federal system at that time with the with the um, sentencing guidelines. And so they were no longer mandatory, but advisory. So when I came back to be resentenced, I had already served about yeah, 16 months or so. And the judge told me at that time that I had gotten everything that I would ever get from federal prison, but because of the mandatory minimum, she had to send me back. So then I had to go back to prison for about another 18 months. And so I, in, in the federal system, there is no parole. You serve 85% of your time. So on the five years, I served almost four years, three years and 10 months on, on that sentence. You're a young person. You're a recent college graduate. I had graduated literally like two to three weeks before I had to self-surrender um, at Alderson Federal Prison Camp. So I graduated with my degree in criminal justice and psychology. I had a job working as a legal secretary and had to call them and tell them that I couldn't take it because the day that I was supposed to report to work was the day that I was supposed to report to federal prison. Wow. What was going through your mind? You know, it, for me, it was really kind of I always tell people it was like an out-of-body experience, like this is happening to someone else, right? Like, you know, we hear all of these stories of people being exonerated for being in prison for things that they didn't do, but you just never think that you're going to be one of those people. You, mm -hmm. even though we're seeing all of these things, we still think that it's going to work, right? That they're going to get it right. And so um, they didn't in my situation. And so just coming to terms with what the criminal legal system was, right? You know, we are raised to think that, you know, if, if you are arrested, if you go to jail, you must have done something something wrong, you know, maybe not what they said you did, but you must have done something right. Um, you know, all of these shows, you know, the cops are the good guys, people that are arrested that are the bad guys and stuff. And so, you know, it was just like, now I'm one of these people that, you know, that, that everyone thinks that if you go to jail or prison, you must have done something wrong. Right. And so, you know, just coming to terms with that and, and actually being in prison and, and realizing that I wasn't the only one that was there and, and just how, how, you know, just how we were just separating families, right? You know, there were women in prison who had, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, again, all behind, you know what I'm saying, this fictitious war on drugs. And so, you know, I get there and I'm just like, you know, I'm distraught with the amount of time that I have. But then like, you know, the women that I'm meeting, they've already been there for 15 years. And it's just like, my gosh, like, what are, what are we doing to people? So, you know, when Michelle Alexander wrote about, you know, the new Jim Crow, like I, 
I lived it. I was a part of that, saw all of that. And so, again, you know, it's it's really a driving force with the work that I do. You know, of course, like, you know, with testifying about marijuana reform and, you know, and the, um, you know, the Equal Act, because I had actually done work around the 100 to 1 crack powder ratio when I was in college mm. at TSU. So I was very familiar with that. And so, again, just seeing all of these things that you read about, like, it's it's no longer numbers like this is people. This is lives. And it's just like, you know, what are what are we doing? Like there's there has to be a better way. Take me back to your mind state when you were incarcerated. You when 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 you made that decision to take on this work that you're doing now. So when I went, so like I said, I was majoring in criminal justice and psychology and, and I always had this this whole thing. I'm always the person that asks why. Like that is like my driving force. Why? Like why do people do the things that they do? And so um, I remember like my mom and my sister, um, they used to think that I was crazy because I used to want to work with serial killers because I wanted to know why people did the things that they did. Because I'm just like, if we can figure out why they did the things that they did, we can prevent this from happening, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was always that. And so when I went to law school, I knew that I, well, when I went to prison, I knew that I wanted to go to law school. And I knew that I wanted to do criminal defense work. But it was in being in prison and hearing the stories of the women talk about how their lawyers didn't do what they wanted them to do, feeling as if their public defenders didn't fight for them and kind of juxtaposing that with my lawyer because I didn't have a public defender. I was blessed to be able to afford a lawyer. And so I said I wanted to be able to provide the same level of representation that he provided me mm. to folks like the women in prison, those that could not afford to pay for a lawyer. And so that's that. It, so it was, you know, the women in prison and hearing them and their stories, the reason why I decided that I wanted to be a public defender. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour with attorney and criminal justice reform advocate, Keita Haynes. So you make this decision to become a public defender. Who helped you? In that process as you move forward? So, um, you know, of course, to become a lawyer, you have to take the LSAT. And so my lawyer's secretaries, Peter Strauss was my lawyer, and his secretaries would actually like send me their books in prison. So I studied for the LSAT wow. when I was at Alderson in prison because there is no rehabilitation in prison. Um, there's nothing for you to do. Like you literally waste away there. And so I chose to study for the LSAT while I was there. So I studied for the LSAT when I was there. And when I came out two days after being released, I started working with Peter as his legal secretary and worked with him up into the time that I went to law school. And so he was very instrumental. And of course, you know, my family and friends were, you know, provided more support than any reentry, you know, class that I had to take legal leaving prison or that I had to take in the halfway house or or any of that kind of stuff. And so and I talk about that in my book, talking about, you know, we have to create a second chance culture because I understand that everybody doesn't have that same level of support that I did. And for those that don't, it is those of us in the community. We have to provide that level of support for them. And so um, that's that's where I talk about the second chance culture from, because I really felt like that. You know, that my family and friends were were it for me, was support that I needed in order for me to be able to be where I'm at today. An example of this second class culture that you cite in your book that really stood out to me was when you were applying for an apartment. You were leaving the halfway house, applying for an apartment, and you were kind of nervous about the landlady to see if she would do a background check, to see if she would accept you. She could care less. 
mm-hmm. about all of that. You know, you cared less about having, I think it was your grandmother to co-sign yes. for you yes. or about, you know, this conviction mm-hmm. on your record. How did that kind of help you develop this philosophy of the second class, second chance culture? You know, it was interesting. It was because, of course, I'm coming out and I didn't have the same barriers to employment that folks have coming out, right? Because I didn't have to tell Peter where I had been because he knew he was my lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I had never really experienced that and until I went to go and get to this, this apartment. And it was, you know, my first experience with having to decide, you know, like battling, okay, like what do I tell her? How much do I tell her? And even with her knowing, she still looked at me as a person. She didn't hold that against me. Um, and again, you know, I think that some of that had to do with the fact that my grandmother was there and that she was able to co-sign. But it was it was the first, you know, situation that I had where I was not defined by my, by my background. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we all need to get to that where people are not defined by their background, that we are not defined, you know, by the worst thing that that we have done or the worst thing that we have been alleged to have done. Right. Um, and so it was it, it felt really good. And, and I wanted to make sure that other people were able to experience this as well, too. And so, again, just a lot of the things that I have experienced is really the driving force in the work that I do when it comes to criminal legal reform. You know, I understand what you're saying. Um, as I've said many times on the show, I've had a, a variety of careers uh, from an educator to working as a bartender. And in both of those settings, I worked with people who were formerly, you know, who were incarcerated and served federal time. And, um, you know, it, be, it gave me an opportunity to see people a, as they are. And that's something that they talked about. And I'm going to ask you this. You know, how difficult is it for people who were formerly incarcerated to, you know, get opportunities free of judgment like the one your former landlady gave you? It, it's very hard. You know, we, we say that we have this scarlet F on our chest, right? Mm. Um, and we are constantly reminded that we are second-class citizens here in this country. And, and a lot of times we are forced to live as shadow citizens because even though we are living amongst, you know what I'm saying, folks in the community, we are still in the shadows because we are not able to participate, particularly in our democracy, in the same way that other folks are. Um, and so that's the thing is that just really wanting folks to see that that we are more than, you know, what anybody has ever said that we're done. And that, you know, and and people have been to jail and people have been to prison. People have paid their debt to their society. And so we should not have to continue to be subjected to that over and over and over again. Um, you know, and, and like I said, and this is because there's a host of collateral consequences that says that we can. And so that's also, you know, a barrier and, you know, something that we fight against is dealing with these collateral consequences so that we are no longer living as second-class shadow citizens in our community. You know, eventually you became an attorney, public defender. What did you see from that side of the criminal justice system, or as you put it, the criminal legal system, that inspired you to run for Congress? So there were a lot of things, and and I, I want to say this because even though I was able to overcome the barriers to become a lawyer, it was still barriers, right? Like mm-hmm. I still had to jump through all of the hoops that someone who didn't have a conviction on their record have to jump through. Um, and 
And I didn't leave that unscathed, like, you know, just going through law school and again, having that scarlet F on your chest, you know what I'm saying? Like in law school and not being afforded the same mistakes that other folks are afforded, right? That follows you, you know, throughout your life. Like I talk about it in the book, you know, with one of the judges who, you know, questioned my character. And I don't think that she would have done that to just any other public defender, but because it was me, you know, because you have a conviction on your record, it is always looked at as if you are doing something unattored, right? It's mm. always something. And again, and like I said, you're not you're not given the benefit of the doubt. And and so that was a burden that I had to carry and and still carry. And so do a lot of other folks who are directly impacted. But, you know, again, like I talk about in the book, and it was really towards the end when I started to feel as if I had become part of the problem. So it's just like you come into this wanting to like dismantle this system, right? Mm -hmm. But because of the way that the system is designed, you become part of this unwillingly and sometimes unknowingly, right? You you really have to stop and do self-reflection be like, how am I contributing to this? Like, How am I contributing to mass incarceration? So, you know, we would say that we have to redefined what a win is because just like you might not be able to get your client you know the case dismissed but you might be able to get them probation but it's just like but if I'm sending them back out into the same community same environment that they came from now with the conviction on their record I'm sending them out worse than how they were when they came to me right and so just realizing you know like all of that and then just because of everything that's associated with being on probation like paying probation fees and trying to get a job and trying to live. And, you know, it's just like, at what point is this seven year probation sentence going to turn into a seven year prison sentence? Because because of society and because of the way that the systems are working, that they're not going to be able to complete this. But I talk about in the book about one of my clients, um, he was arrested for a drug offense and the drug offense that he had, it was cocaine. And so he was offered drug treatment. And, you know, first of all, I have a problem with the fact that people have to come into the criminal legal system to get drug treatment. Mm -hmm. But he was offered that. And so we're filling out the paperwork. And I asked him, I was like, you know, your drug of choice, of course, I'm assuming it's cocaine because that's what he was caught with. And he says, Keita, he says, actually heroin. And I was just like, well, you were caught with cocaine. And he said, yeah, he's like, because... I feel like that cocaine is not as harmful as heroin and I don't have the insurance to go to drug treatment on my own. And so I felt that I should use a less harmful drug to step down from heroin. So he was using cocaine as a means to wean himself off of heroin, to because treat himself, self-medicating self with cocaine. What do you do with that? Mm. What do you do with that? When someone is, is self-medicating with cocaine, trying to get off heroin, because they don't have health insurance to go to drug treatment. Like, what do you do with that? You know, when people are talking about, you know, not having housing, um, you know, when people are talking about, you know, jobs and, you know, and like I said, and just saying the intersectionality of all of this and just recognizing that no one is doing anything about this. Like, we're electing the same folks, you know, to go to Congress each year and to do what? Like, what? what is our standard of living like here? And so that was really the driving force is that, you know, wanting to really be able to represent my clients on a larger scale than what I was able 
able to do just as a public defender and wanted to be able to be in a position so that folks could have a better quality of life, right? Yes, and you're definitely doing it now. <laughs> Keita Haynes is a senior legal counsel for Free Hearts. She's an author and an advocate, and she's the author of the book, Bending the Arc, My Journey from Prison to Politics. Keita, thank you for being here. Thank you for this conversation, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it's no secret that Twitter is going through some changes. There's been a mass exodus of users of the app. Will it survive? What will we lose if it doesn't? This is Nashville. Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Todhout. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. Look, I'm Khalil Ekelona. This is Nashville. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.